0: So Nehemiah chapter nine, and we begin at verse one, this is God's holy word. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth, and having dust or dirt or earth on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. Standing on the stairs were the Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Kadmeel, Shebaniah, Bunai, Sherebiah, Bani, and Kenanai, who called with loud voices to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Yeshua, Kadmeel, Bani, Hashabaneah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God who is from everlasting to everlasting. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Beloved, it is the duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God To confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon, and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. You may be wondering where I'm reading from and where I'm quoting those words from, and you may naturally think that's some Puritan that Matt's been reading again, or perhaps it's from one of the old Reformed confessions of faith that have been dusted off and opened up again in order to read those words, Uh, but neither of those is true. On March 2nd, 1863, Senator James Harlan of Iowa introduced a resolution to the American Senate. The resolution asked President Lincoln to proclaim a national day of prayer and fasting. The resolution was adopted on March 3rd and signed by Lincoln on March 30th, one month before the fast day was observed. And those words that I read were part of that resolution. President Lincoln himself wrote, Whereas the Senate of the United States, devoutly recognizing the supreme authority and just government of Almighty God in all the affairs of men and nations, has, by a resolution, requested the President to designate and set apart a day for national prayer and humiliation. I do, by this proclamation, designate and set apart Thursday, the 30th day of April, 1863, as a day of national humiliation, fasting, and prayer. And I do hereby request all people to abstain on that day from their ordinary secular pursuits and to unite at their several places of public worship and in their respective homes In keeping the day holy to the Lord and devoted to the humble discharge of the religious duties proper to that solemn occasion. 1863 is not that long ago, but it seems like a different world. A different world for a leader of a nation, a politician, to make such a proclamation. So different from the culture that we live in in 2022. But hopefully not anything unfamiliar or strange to us as Christians. The kind of experience that was called for by President Lincoln in 1863 reflects the experience that we read about in Nehemiah chapter 9. This afternoon, we're just going to be looking at the opening verses of chapter 9. Lord willing, we'll consider uh, the whole rest of the chapter next Lord's Day. Next Lord's Day, we also hope to celebrate the Lord's Supper again. In the history of the RP Church and of other Reformed denominations, it was especially during the week before Communion that was called for to be a special time of personal reflection and examination and confession of sin. That just flows out of 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. The word there for examine is the word for test or scrutinize, or recognize as genuine. It's often used of metals, but here it's used of souls, of hearts, and of lives. Beloved, the Christian faith is a confessing faith. Not just doctrine, but sin. We have a confession of faith, that summarizes the doctrines we believe are taught in the Bible. But we should also regularly have confessions of faith. The confession of sin that flows out of gospel faith. Nehemiah chapter 9 is an example of this. It's interesting that Ezra chapter 9 and Daniel chapter 9 are very similar. They all have similar prayers with similar themes. Verse 1 here in Nehemiah 9 tells us that it is the 24th day of the month. And we considered that month last time, the month of Tishri. The Feast of Tabernacles was held during this month, and it ended on the 22nd day of the month. And here we are just two days later later. We should remember that there's already been a great expression of the mourning over sin by the people. Nehemiah 8 verse 9, Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, the teacher of the law, the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. So we've already seen the people convicted of sin and mourning and weeping over it. But that was followed by this occasion, you remember, of great joy. The Day of Atonement was during this month as well. And then the Feast of Tabernacles in verse 17 of chapter 8. The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters, tabernacles or booths, and lived in them from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. Then we come to chapter 9, and what do we see? Matthew Henry called it a spontaneous day of humiliation. This wasn't a, a, a day called for. It seems to be set apart by the people. Yet here they are, gathered again, the day of confession. Because the confession of sin is not a one and done reality in the Christian life. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, in part he said, pray this way, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And so surely as we daily pray for bread, we should be daily praying for the forgiveness of our sins. The first of the 95 theses written by Martin Luther and nailed to the door in 1517 reads this way. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Well, what was this day like here then in Nehemiah chapter 9? If you understand the way that they understood time and hours of the day, a quarter of the day, three hours, three hours in, again, reading and preaching, we assume, of the word of God. And three hours of worshiping. Some suggest that that pattern was repeated the whole 12 hours of the day. Three hours, three hours, then again three hours, and again three hours. Three hours of reading and preaching, three hours of worshiping. And what do you think of when you hear the word worship? Sure, all sorts of things come into our minds. I think it's probably true that for many Christians in our day, that word worship is reduced to singing praise. That's what, We'll have a time of worship, and then we'll have the preaching, and we'll have other things in the service. But that's, that's the worship time. And so the worship leader is the one who leads the praise in a congregation. And so worship has sort of been truncated, put into that box, of praying, how singing praise is certainly worship. But there's more to it than that. Here, note that the confession of sin is not divorced from or antithetical to worship. Because confession of sin brings glory to God when it's done by a Christian in a gospel way. God is praised when his children confess their sin. It's part of worship. They're they're just spoken there in the same breath and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. We're told that along with this confession was fasting. Uh, There's so much these days about fasting. All over the internet, it's a fad in many places and ways. Has many benefits, I'm sure, a lot about fasting for physical health these days. Much less about fasting for spiritual health. But it's so often connected in the Bible with prayer and here with confession. They had sackcloth and ashes. Very scratchy garments that they were wearing and put dirt on their heads. These were outward symbols of what, in the judgment of charity, was the heart attitude that they had of sorrow over their sin and humiliation. They weren't dressed in their blessed clothes to say, look at me. They were humbled and broken over their sin. those were outward symbols we always have to remember what we read in God's word Joel 2:13 rend your heart and not your garments return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and compassionate slow to anger and abounding in love he relents from sending calamity it's not wrong to have outward expressions of inward heart attitudes of course But it's no guarantee that just because the outward is present, that the inward is real. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. True confession, fasting, is not to be done for other people, but toward God. That's why Jesus reminds us in Matthew 6 again, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full, but when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you're fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. If you're doing it for other people, you've got your reward. We trust this wasn't happening here on this occasion. We see some genuine fruit of repentance here. They separated themselves, we read, from foreign peoples. Probably the same issue again of intermarrying that we've already seen in Ezra and Nehemiah. One writer said this was an expression of dedication rather than arrogance. And it's a reminder for us as well. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What fellowship can there be with darkness? Can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and of idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Without the the genuine fruit of repentance, the genuineness of confession... Is suspect. And we see this fruit of repentance here. And then, of course, we see, which I think is really a main emphasis here, we see confession of sin. They confess their sins, we read, and the wickedness of their fathers, their own sin, and the sin of previous generations. Now, you can't hear that with ears open in our culture today and not see that this says something in terms of the whole debate and discussion about reparation and group guilt and all these things that we're hearing a lot about today. Whatever social justice motivations may be at work in what we hear around us today. Obviously, confessing here, manifestly from the Bible, confessing your own sin and the sin of your father's is not always wrong. So we shouldn't throw out the baby with the bathwater here in terms of this type of confession. Now, when it's a question of personal responsibility the reality of personal responsibility for sin and God's justice in dealing with sinners when that may be questioned, then we do need to go to Ezekiel 18, where it's clear that God won't punish one person for the sin of other people, that we bear that guilt for sin ourselves and our own sin. God never misassigns sin and blame. But they confess the sin of their forefathers because... To a great degree, it had led to their situation of exile in Babylon and all that they suffered there, and, and, and they're calling these things to mind and the sins that were involved, and so they could they remember that and confess that. But there is a place for the confessing of sins, of our collective bodies, whether that's our family or our congregation or our nation, and even our forebears. Nehemiah chapter one, you remember, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night and for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess, I confess, Nehemiah, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family have committed against you. Corporate sin, confessed by individuals. Psalm 106, verse 6, We have sinned even as our ancestors did. We have done wrongly and acted wickedly. There is a confession of their sinfulness and also how we may have walked in their footsteps. Maybe that's the sense of it here as well so that we confess the sins of our fathers because they have become our sins too. But that's what was being confessed, the sins, their sins, and the wickedness of their fathers. There's something to it. You know, I was thinking if I somehow found out, and I pray that I never would, I don't expect to, but if I were to hear, you know, in the next couple of weeks that that my dad had, had cheated someone and owed someone money for some business deal gone wrong. I'd want to pay that off. I'd want to own some of that. Because um, he was my father. There's something to this, and, and we need to remember this as we think about confession, not only of our own sins, but of the the sins of the, the groups to which we rightly belong, and even the sins of our forefathers and mothers and forebears. We have much to confess. John J. Murray, in an article called Does the Church Need Repentance, said, It is true zeal for the glory of God that will bring about repentance in the church. The very thought of the need for such a thing is alien to most evangelicals. John MacArthur said recently, we all like to call the nation to repentance, but when do we call the church to repentance? The doctrine of repentance is something that is sadly lacking even in gospel proclamation today. However, it is at the very forefront of the New Testament, the call on the lips of John the Baptist, Matthew 3, 2, the Lord Jesus Christ, Matthew 4, 17, and the Apostles, Acts 2, Repentance is what pertains to the Christian life as a whole. Philip Henry, the father of Matthew Henry, affirmed that he hoped to carry his own repentance to the gate of heaven. COVID has been the source of many discussions and many debates, and sadly many divisions, but I have rarely seen it to be the source of the confession of sin, rarely, as individuals and as the church and as the nation. Where is it? It's not in the nation. Anywhere, pride is what's in our nation. We'll get through this. We'll beat this. No thought of the judgment of God. Churches, judgment begins with the household of God. Have we learned nothing that pertains to confession? Over these past two years, the world looks at the church at many times over the past two years and in many places and rightly shakes its head and says, look at those Christians who speak so loftily about their unity and look at them and individuals We have a lot to confess. Jonathan Edwards, in his Resolutions for Life in Resolution 65, said, resolved to very much exercise myself in this all my life long, namely, with the greatest openness I am capable of, to declare my ways to God and lay open my soul to him, All my sins, my temptations, my difficulties, my sorrows, my fears, my hopes, my desires, and everything and every circumstance. And then he says, according to Manton's 27th sermon on Psalm 119, which you can still get and read through that Psalm on the law of God that moved Jonathan Edwards to write that resolution. One person commenting on Edwards' resolution said so helpfully, this sort of openness is not selfish. There is such a thing as a selfish confession. And this writer said, most of our confessions I fear are selfish. A selfish confession is the sort of confession that doesn't require repentance, nor does it give thought to any restitution. People who confess their sins in this way aren't mindful of the Lord or how their sin has devastated those close to them. This confession isn't driven by a love of God nor a love of others. It is driven by a love of self. Don't confess in this way. Three hours of confession. Three hours. It's hard to imagine, perhaps. How do we get to a place like that? How do we get, I'm not putting a time on it, but how do we get to a place like Nehemiah chapter 9 of a three-hour time of the confession of sin and the worship of God? Well, three things, I think, emerge from this passage before we look at the specifics, Lord willing, next week. Here's the first. Believe God's word. Believe God's word. Verse 3. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law their God for a quarter of the day. This confession, by God's grace and spirit, was animated by the word of God. It was compelled by the word of God. The Greek word for confession, the usual Greek word for confession, gives the English word homologate. It's not a very common word, but it literally means to say the same thing as. That's what it is to confess. We agree with God's word about what is sin and that we have sinned. And confession is just saying, God, you're right. Psalm 51, so that you are proved right when you judge. I agree with what you're saying, Lord. I did this and it is wrong. We agree with God that all have sinned, including myself, that there is no one righteous, that we all stumble in many ways. We agree with that when we confess sin. If we don't confess sin, you remember what John writes in 1st John, you're a liar. And the truth is not in us. God's word. The law of God convicts us of sin. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law didn't produce the sin, but what Paul is saying in light of the law i saw my sin i was just going along thinking it's i'm okay until i opened the book and god showed me my life the bible is like jesus to the woman at the at the well here is someone who told me everything i ever did and here it is and we agree with god when we confess beloved, believe God's word. Our deficiency of confession may be traced back. It may be traced back to the deficiency of our being in God's word. If you're just living your life comparing yourself to others, you won't be very motivated to confess because you're probably better than a lot of people around you. You can just look on uh, in the news every day and and find people who are worse than you are, that's not going to compel you to confession. Or maybe you're just walking in darkness without the light of God's word. You, you, If you're doing that, you won't see what needs to be seen and what needs to be confessed. In the Psalter that we sing, God's given us these songs, Psalm 6, Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 51, Psalm 102, Psalm 130, Psalm 143 are called the penitential psalms. They revol- they're songs about confession. We sang Psalm 32 to begin worship. Luther called these psalms the psalms of Paul because they just so reflected what Paul wrote about sin and confession and the gospel. Oh, how I love your law. It is my study all the day. Believe God's word. And God's law is holy and good because it reflects God himself, his holy character. And so the second way to come to confession is not just to believe God's word, but to behold God's glory. Behold God's glory. They were confessing and worshiping. They stand up and praise the Lord, your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Behold God's glory. How do you come to confess as we should? It's not just by looking at yourself. It's by looking at yourself after you've looked at God and you've beheld His glory. God's character and God's beauty revealed in the Bible. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Sin, you remember, Paul writes, is falling short of the glory of God. That's what sin is. You remember Peter? When they had the miraculous catch of fish, Jesus tells them where to cast their nets, and their nets are breaking. There's so many fish. When Peter saw the clear evidence of the divinity of Jesus, that he was the sinless God-man, when Simon Peter saw this, the fish, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. It's beholding the holiness of God, the moral glory of the Lord Jesus Christ that compels confession. Listen to the holy heavenly creatures. They were calling to one another Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. The sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. And then you know what Isaiah said, Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Why? My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. You haven't confessed sin very much lately. You haven't been beholding God lately. The glory of God. Study God's beautiful holiness. Study his holy judgments against sin. Read Genesis 19. Consider his discipline against his people, his chastisements, to see the seriousness of sin. Believe the Bible and behold God. You know, beloved, even the devil and those condemned in hell can behold God and be convicted of sin. What will make a Christian to be even more eager and ready to confess sin? It's this third thing, to bring to mind the Savior and the mercy of God. We read in this verse that they worshiped the Lord and that's the covenant name of God, the God who entered into a covenant to save his people in the Redeemer, in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. They worshiped the Lord, their God. They were in covenant relationship with this God. They were reconciled to God in the gospel through faith in Messiah, the sacrifice that God had appointed for their sin. Beloved, it is meditating on the cross of Christ, on the forgiveness of sin, on the free mercy and the grace of the gospel that compels confession. Those things never make a true believer casual about sin. They always produce the opposite. Do you remember what we read in Luke 22 as Jesus is on trial? About an hour later, someone asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, Peter, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. The Lord who was going to the cross for Peter's sin. The Lord looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him before the rooster crows you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Bring to mind the Savior and the mercy of God. When in Les Miserables Jean Valjean truly see and own up to his own sin. If you know the story you remember it well. If you've Seen the musical, you maybe even remember it better. It was when he saw someone in the court, someone in the dock who was suffering in his place that compelled him to cry out, Who am I? 24601. It's my sin. And in a much greater way, when any true Christian looks at the cross, then you see, who am I? I'm Barabbas. I'm Barabbas. And there he hangs for me, and I go free. Nothing will make you confess sin more than bringing to mind the Savior and the mercy of God. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but the light to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us and you will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depth of the sea. I was listening to a pastor in Scotland teach a course at a seminary in that country. And he, he was telling about uh, what happened at the end of the Second World War when so much ordnance, so many bombs and mines were, were sunk literally in the Atlantic Ocean to get rid of them. But how every once in a while on the shores of Scotland, something would be washed up on shore. And it was so potentially dangerous for the people. Well, sometimes that happens with our sin. We've confessed it, but the remembrance of it may wash up upon the shores of our soul and the devil would love to use it for harm in your life. But believe God and trust God and look to the Savior. You may remember the sin, but God remembers the guilt of it no more when it's been confessed in the name of Jesus. Trust the word of God. Behold the character of God. And bring to mind the forgiveness of God in Christ. Because if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness.